Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Shahidi, and this is the Evoke Master Speaker Series podcast, where we host open-ended conversations with business leaders and world-class investors who share stories, lessons learned, and market insights. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and please feel free to visit our website at evokeadvisors.com to see videos of these podcasts and to learn more about our firm. Today's conversation is with Gerard O'Reilly, the co-CEO and CIO of Dimensional Fund Advisors, or DFA, a $600 billion investment manager and a pioneer in systematic investing. Previous guests in our series have offered their market perspectives. However, DFA takes a more scientific approach to investing by relying on established academic research. Today, I'm also joined by my co-CIO, Damien Besserier. Together, we engage Gerard in an interesting discussion about the financial theories that underlie DFA's investment process, a comparison of passive versus active investment approaches, the extended bear market and value investing, and the benefits of exchange-traded funds. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for joining us, Gerard. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Damien, for having me on. A great pleasure to be on, on the show with you guys. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, why don't we begin with your background? Because it's a little bit different from what we're used to seeing in the investment management business. Uh, you earned a PhD in aeronautics from Caltech. Uh, so you're a bona fide rocket scientist. Uh, so, so thank you for joining us. Uh, would you just explain to us how this uh, background has shaped the way you think about investing and how it has drawn you to DFA's rules-based uh, systematic approach? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when you do a t- PhD, there's probably a few different areas that you have to develop some uh, skill sets around. And one are probably the analytical tools that are required to actually do a PhD because you're doing research, you're trying to uncover something new, you're trying to publish papers, and you're trying to add to the overall kind of body of work in the scientific community. So that's, you know, skill set of analytical tools, I think, are very helpful to have at a firm like Dimensional. The second area, though, is probably conversations. And what I mean by that is when you're doing a PhD, there's a lot of debate, a lot of discussion of ideas, and you learn how to make cogent arguments, how to kind of hear what other people are saying, take that on board and evolve the way that you think. And that's incredibly important at a firm like Dimensional because I think of dimensional as being kind of evolutionary, but also transformational. And you have to be able to listen and take in new ideas as well as give out ideas. And then the last part I would say, when you do a PhD, you're developing something new. You're coming up with, are focusing on an area of, uh, of science or whatever topic it is, aeronautics is going to be in science. And you're saying, okay, what can I add on to what already exists? So that kind of creativity and trying to add to an existing infrastructure, literature, uh, I think is also helpful when you come to a firm like Dimensional. Ultimately, though, how I got to Dimensional, <clears throat> it's kind of uh, interesting. I ca- I'm from Ireland. So I came to the U.S. in 98 uh, to do my PhD. So I came over to Caltech. And I'm not a U.S. citizen, wasn't then. And uh, when it came to the end of the PhD, there was all these signs uh, for all the recruiters. And it was basically U.S. citizen only when it came to aeronautics, because you may work on defense contracts, things of that nature. So I started looking around and seeing what was available out there. And I saw this firm called Dimensional. And it was heavily associated with academics. And it tried to do real world application of academic ideas. And while it wasn't in a field that I had been familiar with at that point in time, that piqued my interest because I liked academia. I liked the honest, open debate. And yet here was this real world application of academic ideas. So that was kind of in a circuitous way, how I came to dimensional, came down, I met with Ken French. I met with some other folks at the time and said, no, okay, I'll give this a shot for a few years. And this worked out pretty well. Sounds great. Uh, so yeah. So why don't we, why don't we transition to DFA's origins and investment philosophy? Because it is quite different. It's obviously it's uh, it's rooted in academic research. Uh, when you look at your board, uh, it's very different from most investment management firms, where it's dominated by uh, famous finance professors, uh, a couple of Nobel laureates, uh, which obviously all that informs the way uh, you think about investing. Uh, so wh- why don't you uh, maybe walk us through the the origins and the philosophy? 
uh, of GFA. Okay, absolutely. So let, let's start with the origins. So the origins start with, you know, David Boot, Rex Singfield, and, and some others. And uh, David did his MBA uh, in Chicago, late 60s. And then in the early 70s, he started to work uh, with Mac McQuown uh, at the Investment Science Division of Wells Fargo. So Mac and David together, uh, and that was a recommendation on from Eugene Fama because David uh, worked with Eugene Fama, uh, you know, the father of modern finance uh, at the University of Chicago when he was doing his MBA there. And what Mac and, and David did together, along with other folks at that uh, uh, investment science division, along with Myron Scholz, by the way, was they developed the first index funds. So in 71, uh, they developed the first index funds for institutional investors that later got taken up by Jack Bogle and so on in 76. After that, David went out, worked at a consulting firm for a while, and then in 81, uh, decided to start Dimensional. And the whole idea behind Dimensional was identifying needs that investors had that could be met in a rigorous scientific kind of of a way and he was very familiar with indexing and how that worked and all that sort of stuff at the time and identified the needs in small caps. And so I said, well, indexing is going to leave too much money on the table when it comes to small caps. And we can come back to that concept later. So launched this strategy that was focused on small cap stocks, but had flexibility on how you implement it. And at the time, he went to Myron Scholes, who later got a Nobel Prize, Merton Miller, who later got a Nobel Prize, Gene Fama, who later got a Nobel Prize, uh, to say, do you want to be involved in this firm? And they were all intrigued by the concept of, you know, taking some of the ideas from academia. And at that time, there had been a PhD thesis by uh, Ralph Bonds on small caps and their relative returns to large caps and trying to implement that in, in real world strategies. So you fast forward 40 years, and there's some things that are as true today as they were then. So this goes a bit more into the philosophy. So over that 40 years, fixed income was added on in about 83, uh, global fixed income in the early 90s. When the value research came out in the early 90s, value strategies added on, total market solutions or multi-factor solutions added on in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, other types of fixed income solutions to the point now where you mentioned we have over 600 billion across global equity, global fixed income, commodities, real estate, a whole, a whole a host of, of different, uh, different vehicles. And the one thing that's been constant through that entire time is that we look on prices as predictions of the future. Market prices are set by trades between willing buyers and sellers, and effectively those trades represent information. And that information is forward-looking. It's a prediction of the future. And that's really at the heart of the investment philosophy. We don't try to outguess market prices to outperform markets. We say, what information is in market prices to help us outperform markets? Because we have a forecast that's updated real-time all the time. That's the assembly of all the knowledge of all investors in the world. And we use that to try to improve expected returns or manage risks. So that's kind of a, a brief background and a little bit about the philosophy, but maybe I'll pause yeah. there in case you want to take it in. Yeah, minute. you know, what's really interesting is, is there's obviously a lot of different ways to make money. And, and if we just go back to the previous guests that we've had, you know, Jeremy Grantham, Jeffrey Gunlack, Bob Prince, uh, Paul Singer, these are brilliant investors who, who make a living by trying to earn alpha or try to outperform markets by trying to predict what the future looks like. And, and, you know, recognizing the mistakes that other, the consensus is making and trying to profit from that. Um, and they've obviously been very successful over a long period of time. Uh, you know, your approach is quite different from that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe walk into, let, let, let's walk over a little bit more of, uh, explanation of the, maybe the factors that you use and, and why you use them and the kind of the data supporting it. So I think that the thing that we would have in common with some of the investors that you just mentioned is we all believe there are differences in expected returns across stocks. Now, the question then becomes, are those differences in expected returns all because of mispricing, all because of differences in risk profiles across different stocks or different bonds, or something else? Right? That, and that's where there will be a fork in the road. The way that we view it is the price is what it is. You may think it's too high, you may think it's too low. Regardless of what you think, it's giving you information about the expected return that investors demand to hold a stock. That's 
for sure what it's giving you. So we say, let's not try to outguess market prices. Let's use the information. Um, that's a, a fork in the road because then you say, well, what can I control in that scenario? What I can control is a level of turnover, the level of diversification, how I manage my exposure to different segments of the market, whether those are low price stocks with relative to book value or earnings or things like that, value stocks or high profitability stocks or small cap stocks. You manage those types of items. That's what your focus becomes. How do you make yourself as efficient as possible so you leave as little money on the table to take the returns that markets have to offer? On the other path, you say these prices are wrong. In order for me to profit, I have to be smarter and faster. And that leads to a very different investment process where you end up with concentrated portfolios, much higher turnover because you're trying to work on these market mistakes and you're worried that the market will correct the mistake before you get to profit from it, right? So it, it leads to a very different approach. So they both start with, there are differences in expected returns across stocks. And one approach says, let's take the information and prices as is. And the other approach says, let's pretend prices are wrong and you get very different outcomes. So our outcomes to, to your point, Alex, you know, we have, we believe that when you look at on any given day, let's look at the stocks that are trading at low prices relative to fundamentals. Let's look at the stocks that have high profits or low asset growth. Why? Because that gives you a forecast of cash flows to investors. And let's look at uh, company size. And let's say those are the stocks that are smaller, higher profitability, lower price. The market has applied a higher discount rate to it. I'll give you an example. So last year, Tesla went up six, 700%. A lot of people go, well, how can that be? Prices must be wrong. They may or they may not be. I don't know why it went up six or 700%. It may be because people think that there's going to be a lot higher demand for vehicles in a post-COVID world. Nobody will want to take public transportation. It may be because they think a lot of regulations come down the pipeline that everybody needs to drive an electric vehicle. It may be because there's greater demand for Tesla as a consumption item. People like to say, I own Tesla, not as an investment, but as a consumption item. Regardless, aggregate demand for Tesla changed. We look at that and don't go, is the price too high or too low? We say Tesla was a growth stock, high price relative to fundamentals at the start of the year. It is surely a growth stock after a six to 700% return. It has a lower than market expected return. So then in terms of how we weight that, it's lower than market weight if we're trying to outperform the market. You take something like an airline. Well, airlines went down in the opposite direction over the course of last year. Why? Because people demand a much higher return to hold airlines today than they did at the beginning of last year, because their future is more uncertain. So that's kind of an example of one person might say the prices are, are wrong, and we say, well, the prices are what they are. Let's understand what the market is demanding in terms of high or low expected returns to hold different stocks, use that information that's updated real time all the time to say, how do we want to position our portfolios? And, and you take that multiplied by thousands of stocks. So you take out those idiosyncratic risks and you're basically just capturing that, that um, market pricing. That, that's really uh, an important point, Alex. I, I agree 100% that when it comes to investing, diversification is very, very important. And it's diversification across stocks, across sectors, across countries, across regions. Because you never know which stock is going to be the best performing or the worst performing. But what you do know is that when you have a well-diversified strategy, that the range of outcomes on the right tail and the left tail, so the extremely good ones and the extremely bad ones, that narrows in. And that improves the level of certainty, even though there's still a lot of uncertainty about investing, the level of uncertainty of what to expect from your portfolio. But it does more than that. It helps manage risk in different ways. So I'll give you some examples. Last March, markets are volatile. Why are they volatile? Uncertainty just went up. When uncertainty goes up, there's a few things that you should expect. Bid offer spreads, that's the price at which you can buy and sell stocks, increases. Liquidity, volumes, increase. Volatility, increases. Whenever there's uncertainty, those are the things that happen. And when you say, well, how do you implement when markets go like that? Diversification allows you flexibility such that you can be a bit more selective in how and when and what you buy and sell. So examples would be, and I'll use a fixed income example. 
there was a lot of talk about markets and fixed income were liquid in March. They weren't. They were not. If you look at aggregate volumes and fixed income in March, they were double what they were in February. But bid offer spreads were very wide. And if you wanted to trade specific bonds, you were going to pay a lot to do so. We were a net seller of bonds in March. Why? Because people were rebalancing out of bonds and into equity. Because equities had gone down and bonds hadn't gone down by as much. If you look at our execution price, 100 basis points better, 1% better on sales and corporate bonds than other people in the marketplace. So if you look at the bond, same bond that the trade before us or after, 100 basis points better. That's where diversification comes in. That allows you to have that flexible implementation approach that then you leave less money on the table when it comes to implementing. So that's an extreme example. March is an extreme market event. But that holds true in all different types of markets. It's just in some markets, it tends to be more valuable than in other markets. Gerard, I want to revisit a point you made, which is that you can forecast future returns by looking at the price of a stock relative to its fundamentals. The challenge, I think, though, is how do you measure those fundamentals on a prospective basis? So for instance, I think of a company like Amazon, where I think across most traditional value metrics for a long time, you would have said it was too expensive, but this was a company that was grabbing market share, underpricing their competition, investing in their business, and knowingly, you're basically securing a dominant market position, and it's become a fantastically profitable business over time. And I feel like using just a backward-looking assessment, you would have missed that type of move. And I think that's emblematic of a lot of the moves we've seen in growth stocks over the last decade. So I wonder if you can comment on what am I missing in that analysis? How do you think about it at dimensional in terms of forecasting future profitability when oftentimes these companies are not profitable today? That's a, that's a good question, Damien. I'm going to take it in two different directions. So the first direction is about complementing price with forecasts of net cash flow to shareholders because the shareholders are the residual holders of the firm. So the net cash flows accrue to the shareholders. They have some rights over those, over those cash flows. And when you look at those cash flows, you can decompose them into profits and asset growth, basically. It's profits and investments. Higher the profits, profits tend to predict future profits. And asset growth or investments, high asset growth tends to predict future high asset growth. So higher current profits equals higher future profits. You combine that with lower price, higher discount rate, right? So if you have a lot of cash flows expected in the future, at a low price, that's a big discount rate. Discount rate equals your expected return. Higher investment or how much you have to grow your assets, that equals lower discount rate, lower cash flows to shareholders. So that goes the other direction with expected returns. So your observation that you have to combine prices with predictions of cash flows, that's an important one. And when you think about pre predicting cash flows, that's very different than predicting future prices because profits, asset growth and things tend to be intrinsic firm characteristics. Well-run firms remain well-run firms for some period of time. And so you can have predictions of those and then you combine them with what's in the price. So now that's, so that's an important observation. And so Amazon a decade ago wasn't a highly profitable firm. Today, it's much more highly profitable. So then that comes into the question in particular of growth stocks. And it's a good example over the past decade, which is what was expected from their returns and what was unexpected. And that's really at the heart of your question, in my view. Can you get at the unexpected part of the return? And my view on that is no. And let's take some examples. If you look at Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, the FANG stocks, over the past decade, 10 years or so, their annualized compound return has been about between 30 and 35%. So to put that in perspective, their prices as a group of stocks have doubled every two to two and a half years. And you'd say, go back 10 years. Would folks have thought that they, their expected return for the next decade was 30% a year? And I think you'll find very few people who say yes to that question. So what happened? Well, the expected part of their return, what was priced in, was about eight or nine. But unexpectedly, 
lots of things broke their way. Even if you look at the time period like COVID, would you have thought that COVID would have been so beneficial for Amazon's business? Probably not. Would, you know, that's, that's an unexpected event that turned out to be very beneficial for a firm like Amazon or Netflix. So the unexpected part has an expected return of zero. And there's not much you can do about that. You, we refine our, our forecasts of cash flows like we have profitability. We look at profitability growth. We look at asset growth. So we look at things so we can come with a, a well-refined uh, forecast, but unexpected things are going to happen. And that's to Alex's point, diversification is key. That's all you can do to manage the unexpected component of expected returns is diversification so that it minimizes that happening with any one stock. I'm putting in context, <clears throat> I'll use Tesla again as an example. How many times did Tesla issue new stock last year? I think a few times, right? A few times. Now, let's think about you running a company. And you say, well, I think my return is going to be 600%. Will I give that return away to new uh, shareholders, new investors? 100% no. And who knows better than the return of that firm than the, the people who manage it? So it's, it's one of those cases where you look at Facebook, Amazon, it's, what happened for them, I think, is largely unexpected over the past decade. Regulators missed it. Society missed it. Uh, and things broke their way. That shouldn't inform your expectations going forward. Tesla's a very interesting example because in a lot of ways, the share price has enabled the vision to become reality. And I think there are stories like this, particularly within the innovation technology sector of the market, where charismatic entrepreneurs literally talk things into reality. And I don't know, maybe Tesla is, is a unicorn and there aren't others like this, but I think um, it, it feels like that type of uh, dynamic would be something that would not be captured by your process. And I wonder how you think about that because um, clearly Tesla's share price, it, it's, almost like the, it's almost the reverse of what you normally think of, which is a company does exceptionally well and the share price follows. Here, the share price does exceptionally well and it enables them to outcompete others. And, and I wonder if that is a dynamic that is becoming more common within the marketplace because you have such tremendous amount of disruption coming from technological advances new companies, new entrants, taking market share from established profitable businesses that are now in secular decline? Yeah, let me, let me take that in a couple of different directions because it's a good question and a good observation. Cast your mind back to the late 90s and the early 2000s. How many technology companies were in the fight to become a dominant technology company at that point in time? You are seeing the handful that won. Amazon has been around for a long, long time. A long time. It didn't just have success over the past five years. It fought with hundreds of other technology companies to be the dominant player. You are seeing the outcome of Tesla. Tesla has been around a very long time, before Elon, a long time. And you are seeing the outcome of the winner. People often look and say, that's the winner. I should be able to pick future winners, shouldn't I? I should be able to pick future winners, no doubt. But that's no different. It's been that way in the market for hundreds of years. If you go back, let's say to the 40s and the 50s, AT&T was the biggest firm in the market. Then you had IBM, then you had GE, then you had GM, you had all these companies. And every single one of them, what did they share in terms of their characteristics? New technology that changed the way that we live. So GM developed the automatic transmission. Did that change the way we live? You betcha. You betcha. GE, they developed the LED light bulb. Did that change the way we live? You betcha. AT&T, they developed the mobile phone. Did that change the way we live? You betcha. And they became the biggest firm in the market because they changed the way we live. And the markets reflected that in their prices. After they become the biggest firm in the market, they outperform the market to get there. What happens to their share price afterwards? They usually underperform the market by about 1% a year over the following five years. So if you look at the top five, top 10 firms, after they become the top five or top 10, they underperform. So that's, that's quite common. So when I hear about you know, new technology, now is different than before, uh, that I don't share that view at all because the new normal is normal. 
there's been innovations in technology in global markets for the past 100 years. That has been the norm. And those innovations in technology are exactly what lead to value premiums. Why? Because when you have a new technology, it brings uncertainty about who the winners and who the losers are going to be. Who's going to be able to use this technology to best serve their customers and drive higher net cash flows for shareholders? That's, that's in our society, that's what happens. And then what the market does is it tries to process that information and give you a reflection of probabilities of who it thinks will win and who it thinks will lose. Is it a perfect forecast? No, but no perfect forecast exists. But that's the way it's been decade in, decade out. So that uncertainty is what people demand compensation to bear. Prices move up and down so that the return that investors demand to hold a stock equals the expected return. So if people demand a higher return to hold an airline stock than to hold Apple today, that's in the price today, right? And prices will change up and down to keep that expected return where the investors demand it to be. So I think that the, 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 the backward look is always dangerous because the backward look focuses on the winners. The backward look focuses on the survivorship bias. The backward look focuses on a backfill bias. And when you control for all of those things, it's just not a, it's not a fruitful way to try and invest. There's yeah. going to be winners and users. It's just the way that it is. Yeah, it's so interesting because hindsight, we all heard, is 2020. But what you, what you always forget and, and undervalue is all the losers, right? The, the, because they disappear. They're off the radar. You don't see them anymore. Yeah. And, and so I think to part of what you're describing is, is you need to have a longer term focus and in some ways, a more academic uh, view of things where you're looking, you know, it, it's like an honest uh, uh, perception um, yeah. rather than just looking at what you see on the news, you're taking account of everything that's happened and you're looking at over a long period of time across countries and trying to identify uh, what that, you know, what it's actually telling you. That, that's spot on, Alex. And I'll give you an, an example of that on using mutual fund data. So the returns from mutual funds and, and two, two aspects to that example. The first aspect is survivorship bias. If you go back 20 or 30 years and you say, let me look at the returns of only those funds that survived and I compute the distribution of those returns and whatever alphas you want to compute. And now let me put all the funds in that were in there 30 years ago. What do you think happens to performance? Performance goes down when you put all the funds in, the ones that survived and didn't, by the tune of about half a percent to one percentage point, right? So that's how big an impact it has on the returns of those mutual funds. So survivorship bias and that 2020 hindsight is something that you have to be very careful of when you're taking an honest look at the, da at the data and saying, 20 years ago, what information did I actually have to make a decision without biasing my experiment with forward-looking information, right? So that, that's important. The second piece that's important, and this goes back to Damien's point a little bit, which is when you look at the performance of those money managers that are in the business of outguessing the markets. So let me find the, the ones that can outguess the markets. You don't find compelling evidence that they have been able to take advantage of the Teslas or the Amazons or the Facebooks in real time to the benefit of the investor. There's absolutely some that have done well, but when you look at the distribution, of those outcomes, it's skewed to the left, where investors would have been better off holding the entire market than uh, picking some of those funds at random. So th there's some really good insights in survivorship, in looking at the data, and the benefits of diversification uh, from, from those experiments. You're referring to a number of relationships that have held over 50 years or more this is the academic research that was published by Fama and French that is the basis of what Dimensional does. How do we know, because some of those factors have dramatically underperformed over the last decade, like value, how do you know that that data is still relevant, that it's still a reliable way to generate outperformance? When you look at value, for instance, by some measures, last year was the worst year of underperformance of value versus growth in 100 years. And over the last 10 years, there's been a dramatic amount of underperformance. How do you know that is the unexpected outcomes that you referred to that can't be predicted that have an expected value of zero? 
versus something that has fundamentally changed? Okay, so great question. And let's, let's think about it in, in two different ways because some things stay the same and some things change. So let me ask you guys a question. And I ask this question pretty frequently uh, to folks. Do you think all stocks have the same expected return? No. No. I've never gotten the answer yes to that question. <laughs> so basically, you've told me you believe in value premiums. Why? Because effectively, what you're saying is some stocks have high expected returns or a high discount rate applied to their future cash flows. And that can be any number of reasons, differences in risk. It can be taste and preference. It can be any number of reasons. And some stocks have low expected returns. And that's value. Value is a discount rate effect. You can think of it similar to bond prices. When bond prices are high, yields are lower. When bond prices are low, yields are higher and so on. Value is that same, same effect, right? That's in its essence, the same effect. That's what doesn't change. Value goes away when you think the expected return of all stocks are the same. Then there's no value premium, but there's no premium at all for any one stock over another. So hold the market in that scenario. And that's a very unlikely world to live in. Why? In part because of some of the comments that you made earlier on, Damien, about evolving technology and that leading to uncertainty about who the winners and the losers will be. So that's, that's what stays the same. What changes and what you have to be very introspective about and test all the time is that the ways that you identify who's low price, who has high expected net cash flows to investors, that may change over time. Market microstructure changes over time. Regulation changes over time. And all those things have to be adapted to. So if you look at how we manage money today versus 20 years ago, it's very, very different. How we process data, how we look at assets, how we look at liabilities of companies, how we look at information from the income statement. It's very different than it was 20 years ago because accounting practices have changed, because market microstructure has changed, the way the firms do corporate actions have changed, and you have to evolve your processes with that. So there's a, there's a truth, which is some stocks have high expected returns and some stocks have low. And then there's the practicality of how do you go about capturing, capturing uh, those returns. Now, let's go to your... your um, recent example of value. If you look, actually, it wasn't just last year. If you put the last three years together, it was the worst three-year period on record. The last worst three-year period on record was in the 40s. I think it was around 45 or so uh, in terms of the underperformance of value relative to growth in the US and and globally. And uh, that tacked onto the end of, I'll call it a tepid seven-year period is makes the 10-year period look uh, particularly disappointing. The seven-year period wasn't horrible. Uh, you know, in the US, value underperformed growth over the seven years of the, f- the first seven years of the last 10 uh, by about 2%, give or take. And that happens, you know, 10, 15% of rolling seven-year observations. It's not expected, but it's not unprecedented. It has happened plenty. But the last three years were particularly challenging. And, and Damien, I think your observation of last year with value is particularly the case. A lot of it, I think, uh, related to COVID, where you had companies that were energy companies that were already on the value side of things. Some of the airlines were already on the value side of things, and they really had a hard time uh, with their share prices last year. And that kind of led to this this, uh, big dispersion in, in value versus growth. And you say, has something changed? Well, no value. The stocks that have lower prices today still have higher expected returns. But I do think in years like last year, you do have to examine your processes. So I'll give you an example. Like in March into the second quarter, uh, one thing that we took a lot of time looking at was uh, firms that were either writing down discontinued operations, things like that, extraordinary line items on their income statements, and whether those were categorized as extraordinary or ordinary, and if we should include them in our forecasts of profitability. So in time periods like that, I do think that you have to be introspective when you have those shocks to earnings in in the marketplace. Well, yeah, you're gonna try to do that across thousands and thousands of stocks. Don't give up diversification, but you have to have a good process in order to be able to, uh, you know, kind of work with those types of data sets. Uh, But no, it hasn't uh, changed my belief at all that there are differences in expected returns across stocks. And every day when I wake up, I believe, that the market has priced some stocks lower than others in 
demand for compensation of higher expected returns from some stocks versus others. And if what's expected comes to pass, you get a value premium. If what's better than expected comes to pass, you get a really big value premium. If what's worse than expected comes to pass, you get a negative value premium. November, great example. News about vaccines coming out, uh, some uncertainty in the political climate, but sort of resolved, all the way resolved now, but sort of resolved. So there was unexpected events in November. People weren't expecting by the end of November to have so many potential vaccines right on our doorstep. Better than expected news. That was also good for the companies that were in value at the time, massive value premium in November. So it's all about what's expected versus unexpected. But unfortunately, what we spend a lot of our time discussing is the unexpected component of returns because everybody wants to you know, talk about the most recent year and so on, which is largely driven by the unexpected component. One thing that I think is challenging for a strategy like yours, it's so transparent. And when you started to do this years ago, you were a pioneer in this field in terms of utilizing these factors to build portfolios. And today there are many firms that have seen your success and are trying to replicate that. And I wonder if you measure or you have a, a feel for the impact of crowding in some of these factors, because you could imagine that at one point they did offer a premium, but over time, as more and more market participants have tried to take advantage of that, that premium goes away. And one just anecdotal aspect that has interested us on our side as we think about allocating to your strategies is you can see that the premia that you harvest tend to be better in the less efficient markets, things like um, small caps or emerging markets versus large cap U.S. equities. So I wonder if there's any, any sort of rationale related to that that maybe influences the, the efficacy of your approach in different markets. A couple of, of very important points in what you've just said there. So let me, let me build on that a little bit. Transparent. We think that it's very important to be transparent in your investment approach. Why is that? Because we work with investment professionals like yourselves, and you have lots of clients that you serve. Now, we want to be able to allow investment professionals to monitor us very deeply, very accurately. And that means you need to have a level of transparency in the strategy so that you can set your expectations correctly. And then ex post, measure what we've done and confirm we did what we told you we would do. And that's one of the most important parts, in my opinion, of our business, that for decades, we have said, this is what we'll do for you, either how we'll position the portfolio from an asset allocation perspective, how we'll implement that strategy day in, day out, how we'll trade that strategy, how we'll select the stocks that we buy and sell on any given day. And this is how we're going to do it. And then demonstrate that's what we did. This is what we told you we would do. This is what we did. And that transparency, I think, is important, in particular uh, when working with, uh, with you know, sophisticated uh, investment professionals like yourselves so that you can monitor us and know that we did what we told uh, you that we would do. And now on the other side of that says you have transparency. People might copy what you do. And I think that's, uh, you know, flattery <laughs> in some respects. And it doesn't bother me at all. And I'll tell you for a few different reasons. Number one, when you're in a business and you're, you're the only person in the business, you're one away from extinction. When you have a lot of people competing with you, yeah, you have to be better at your craft and explaining what you do to your customers and your clients so they see the value that you can bring to the table for them because ultimately it's a combination of expertise. We have expertise that our clients don't have and they have expertise that we don't have. We know capital markets as good as anyone. And they know their clients and the goal of the investment assets better than anyone. And those two sets of expertise together uh, make a powerful combination for the end investor. So, so that's, that's kind of a, an important aspect. We have to compete in that area. So now, because that way of investing that we've pioneered for 40 years has become more acceptable, the size of the pie has gotten way bigger. The size of the pie today for strategies like ours and our approach is much bigger than it was in the past. So that's good for us. We get to have more in-depth conversations with clients about some of the technical aspects of what we do. 
to help them understand why we bring value to the table. So that, that's item number one. The crowding uh, argument is not a very compelling argument in my view. And let's take that. So you said in small caps, the premiums tend to be bigger. Well, that was true pre-1990 and it's true post-1990, right? That's been true in all data sets, regardless of if there have been a lot of people investing in that way or not. That's just been true in the data sets. Whenever you look at these excess returns of, you know, low price to book or price to earnings or price to sales or price to cash flow stocks over high, those always tend to be bigger in small caps. The same with momentum, the same with profitability. It just tends to be bigger in small caps than, than large caps. But when you look at the money manager data, you don't see much difference in terms of the distribution of returns, i.e. people being able to exploit any alleged inefficiency in one market versus another. So that, that's item number um, item uh, number one on that front. But the other front uh, that I would say is that I think there's compelling data that supports there's been a move from traditional active to systematic. We're systematic. Traditional active is the stock picker. There's compelling data that supports that, but not much compelling data to say that there's higher aggregate demand for those types of stocks, value stocks, than there were before. The biggest anecdotal example of that is if there's increase in aggregate demand, what does it do to prices? It moves prices up. What have we seen from value premiums over the past decade? They've been negative. You don't get a negative value premium with increased aggregate demand for the value stocks. That's just not the way that the world works. That's basic economics that violates that rule. Um, But the second uh, observation is what types of stocks do traditional active managers like? Low price with high expected cash flows. They may think the price is low because the price is wrong, but low price, high expected cash flows. What kind of stocks does a systematic approach like dimensional like? Low price, high expected cash flows, except we'll do it in a well-diversified fashion, a transparent fashion, a cost-conscious fashion, and a a low turnover uh, fashion. So in that sense, that that doesn't hold uh, too much water, uh, in in my books at least, um, on on that particular one. So I think that there's certain truths to to what you mentioned, uh, but they have to be considered in in kind of a more nuanced framework. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh, let, let's shift gears a little bit. We're, we're talking about diversification. You, you've emphasized how important that is. Um, most uh, U.S. investors hold a large overweight to U.S. assets, uh, you know, in, in many cases, even more than what the market cap exposure is. Um, and that's actually worked out really well. U.S. has outperformed most of the world the last 10 years. Um, we, you've, you've described that you're a big proponent of global diversification. Um, so maybe explain why would uh, investors uh, move towards areas like in Japan or Europe that have that seem to be stuck in the mud and not going anywhere, um, just for the you know the advantages potentially that can come from diversification. You know, Alex, if we were having this conversation ten years ago, you'd be asking me why are we investing in the U.S. because it's just underperformed the rest of the yeah. world by a wide margin over the prior ten years. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. And that's what you find with any asset category that has outperformed over a period of time that people say, why should I own these other asset categories? And it's exactly for that reason that you don't know which asset category is going to be the highest performing asset category over any period of time. So that's why we like our core funds as an example. It buys growth stocks, value stocks, high profitability, low profitability, large, small, and overweights those with higher expected returns, but doesn't exclude any asset category. But it's the same with global. When you look at the reliability of outcomes, those reliability of outcomes. And what I mean by that is outperformance versus the broad market. So a strategy that's trying to outperform the broad market, the reliability of outcomes goes up the more countries that you include. Because when you look at value, yeah, value has been negative in the US for a period of time, but there's a few countries, like about a quarter of the countries out of the 40 or so around the world where there's been positive value premiums, right? So that uh, you know, you pursue these premiums in lots of different countries, that improves the reliability of outcomes. So that's one, one, big, one big reason. Uh, another big reason is just that plain old diversification. It gives you flexibility on implementation. And you just don't know which stock, which sector, which country is going to be the best performing over the next decade. So we went through a decade where it was basically EM, non-US developed, and US, EM the highest, non-US developed, and US over a 10-year period, the last decade for the S&P 500, as it was called. And now we've gone through the exact opposite. 
US, non-US developed, and EM. So in the exact opposite order. What will it be over the next 10 years? I don't know, but that's reflected in market caps. Like the US was about 40, 40, 45% of the market, world market, 40-ish, 10 years ago. Now it's 55, give or take, right? So that's reflected in, in, um, in the weights in, in various different markets. Uh, so I think that that, you know, global diversification is a, is a, in some respects, you'll never be the best, you'll never be the worst, but you won't miss out on those big opportunities like the Teslas or the Facebooks when they come because they're part of the overall, um, overall global market portfolio. One caveat, though, I would put on uh, that is that for U.S. investors, there can be good reasons to have an overweight to the U.S. And I'll mention two. One is familiarity bias. That's not really an investment reason other than if it turns you into a longer-term investor. We know that the probability of success of realizing positive premiums goes up at the time horizon. So why might it turn you into a longer-term investor? Because most U.S. investors are used to seeing, here was the Dow return, here was the return of the S&P 500, and so on and so forth. And if they're very different than that, they go, well, what's going on? Something's gone wrong with my portfolio. And so having a home bias can help you, I guess, ride the ups and downs uh, with, a, with a little more peace of mind. The second, though, is taxes. And when you look at the dividends paid from uh, the stocks of foreign companies, well, they're subject to withholding taxes in many different countries, and it varies around the world. Now, you will get that on your 1099 for a taxable account, but in a tax-deferred account, those are gone. You don't get to reclaim them, right? And so if you have a lot of money in your tax-qualified tax uh, plans, but not in your taxable plans, then a U.S. home bias may be worth it because the, there's, the benefits of, financial, uh, of international diversification are good, but they come potentially with a cost. So if the cost is 10% off the dividend, well, then you say, okay, maybe an overweight to the U.S. can be a good idea. So the first one is more behavioral. The second one is uh, more closely tied to investment. Gerard, how do you think about the role of fixed income given the level of rates? Because there's a large component of your business in fixed income. You also manage multi-asset class portfolios that are constructed in line with the more traditional 60-40 orientation. So how are you thinking about fixed income given the dynamics in the environment today? Yeah, we have about, uh, Damien, to your, to your comment there, about 120 billion, give or take. It's about 20% of our business uh, is in uh, fixed income assets. And they're globally diversified, just like the equities. And we have a, a wide range of fixed income uh, assets in, in, the, uh, in the portfolio. So let me go back a little bit to the goal of a portfolio. When it comes to equities, you have expected or forecasted cash flows. When it comes to a bond, you have promised cash flows. And depending on the overall credit quality of the bond, those cash flows usually show up if it's a high credit quality bond, like an investment grade and above. You get very few defaults in investment grade and above. So you have promised cash flows rather than expected cash flows. And what that means is that you can have a more targeted set of goals that fixed income can be applied to. Equity is generally about real asset appreciation. How do you grow your assets faster than inflation so you improve the purchasing power of your assets in the future? Fixed income, you can have volatility management where you go short-term high credit quality and you have a lot of certainty about the value in nominal terms of those assets. That can be one goal. Another goal is just total return where then you look at a broad opportunity set of bonds of lots of different maturities, lots of different credit qualities, and your goal is how do I improve returns? You can have cash flow matching, where you know that you have a certain set of cash flows over the next five years. So let me use a set of bonds to help immunize and know that I will have those cash flows with high degree of certainty. So you have a lot of different goals. So the interest rate environment also has to be taken in context with the goals. So that's, that's item number one. So when you think about fixed income, start with a goal and then go from there to say what fixed income instruments meet that goal in the best fashion. The second item is that even in a low interest rate environment, you can still have reasonable returns. So let's look at the past decade. So the past decade, uh, if you look at uh, interest rate environments around the world, there's been a lot of times and countries where it's been low in the past decade. 
And if you look at the returns of something like, you know, the Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate, which is basically a representation of the global bond market, it's been about four, between four and 5%, some number in around there, even in those low interest rate environments. And some of that, you say, well, how, how does some of that come about? Well, one aspect of the return of a bond is its yield, but the other is capital appreciation, depending on whether the yield curve is upwardly sloped or downward sloped. So let me use a, a simple example. If I have a bond that's yielding 2% and it has two years to maturity, and the interest rate at the two-year mark is 3%, and the interest rate at the one-year mark is 1%. Well, over its full life, well, then it has to be 3%. So let's say it's, it's 2% at the two-year mark and 1% at the one-year mark. Um, over its full life, that bond gives me two and two, four. But does it give me that equally over each year? No, if at the two-year mark, the interest rate is 2%, and it's going to 1% at the one-year mark. It gives me the 2% yield, and a 1% of capital appreciation as it goes from two to one, goes down the yield curve, then it gives me 1% in the second year. So it gives me three and one, not two and two. When you look at the term structure of, of yield curves, and you can do that for, there's probably two to 300 yield curves around the world that you need to look at because there's different currencies and then there's different credit qualities. Those all give you information from prices that are forward-looking about differences in expected returns across different maturity, credit quality, and currency of issuance bonds. And you can use that to improve returns even when interest rates are low. So I think that there's two aspects to it. One, think about the goal. Then two, think about the information in current bond prices about differences in expected returns across different bonds and use that to improve uh, the expected outcome. And, and 2020 was another great example. Coming in, interest rates were low and the consensus view is rates were going to rise and they're lower now than they've ever been. <laughs> so yep. go figure. Go figure. And it's been that way. 2019, you could have told a similar story and 2018, yeah. a similar story. And even, uh, was it 2018 or was it 2017? I think it was 2018 when interest rates went up by a lot on the short end of the curve. And if you had told you at the start of the year, interest rates were going to go up by one or two percentage points this year, nobody would have said, extend your duration. But what happened? They went up a lot of the short end of the curve. They came down in the long end of the curve. And there were massive term premiums. Long-term bonds outperformed short-term bonds by a massive amount. I think it was 2018, but, but don't hold me to that. So even if you know where one of those 200 yield curves is going, it does, doesn't tell you what the returns of global bonds are going to be. Right. Um, so let, let's move. Uh, you mentioned taxes earlier. Uh, for, you know, for taxable clients, tax efficiency is a big deal. And it may become a bigger deal over time, you know, with our fiscal deficits and potentially rising tax rates. Uh, would you would you share your views on the importance of taxes? And, and, and we know that DFA has taken significant steps to improve tax efficiency of some of your strategies. Um, so would you describe that and, and walk us through what you've done? Yeah, absolutely. We launched ETFs last year, uh, as uh, you may be familiar with, and we launched three uh, three new ETFs last year. And uh, last year, we also made it public through various different registration documents that we were going to take some of our tax-managed funds and convert those into ETFs. Now, those tax-managed funds have been highly tax-efficient because they do things around capital gains and dividends that helps improve tax efficiency. So let's think about that. In 2003, as an example, we I don't remember what it was called actually now. It was kind of like the Growth and, and Something Tax Act where qualified dividends were introduced for the first time. So dividends, depending on certain characteristics, would be taxed at a lower rate than other dividends. So for example, if you got a dividend from a real estate investment trust, it was generally taxed at a higher rate than a dividend from a corporation. Or if you held the stock for long enough around when the dividend was paid, it was taxed at a lower rate than uh, dividends from if you had bought and sold the stock around that time period. So we looked at that tax code, used that tax code to improve the character and nature of the dividend income. Why? Because these were taxable investors that were in these funds. So they cared about the taxes. And our objective is to maximize after-tax wealth, not minimize the tax bill, maximize after-tax wealth. So if you can pay fewer taxes because you're paying at a lower rate, that's one benefit. And if you look at those funds, those funds have had tax efficiency ratios the same as ETFs over the past decade because 
they've focused on the character and nature of the dividend income. Like I'll give you an example, a small cap ETF generally has about a 70% uh, what they call qualified dividend uh, income distribution. We're 100% in the small cap space, right? That's the difference, right? 30% of those uh, dividends tax differently. So that's an important aspect of maximizing after-tax wealth for some investors. But those funds have distributed capital gains where ETFs have not. So with the uh, ability of ETFs to do certain things that lowers the number of capital gains distributions, that allows you to defer the payment of those capital gains till you sell the ETF generally. So by converting them, we take an already tax-efficient set of vehicles and turn them into an even more tax-efficient set of vehicles where we expect to be able to do better than what are the ETFs out there on, on, on a tax um, perspective. So I think taxes are a very important part of investing. You have to be realistic, though, in terms of what you're going to do with the wealth. So if you're saving to consume, then you're going to pay the taxes sooner or later. Then basically what the advantage of the de deferral is the opportunity cost of investing in cash. That's kind of what it works out as. But a lot of people want to save to either give to their heirs, to give to charity, to donate in certain ways. And then having the benefit of the deferral is much higher because you have to step up in basis and never pay the taxes, right? Because you give it away. You give it away to a charity or uh, some type of uh, organization like that. Uh, so we're excited about uh, bringing those to the market and it'll be the first uh, conversion of mutual fund to ETF of size. There's been a few tiny ones, uh, but this one will be the first one of size that's uh, ever been done. So something that we're working on uh, this year, we're, we're full steam into it right now. But we're very excited about bringing that to the market uh, over the course of this year. That's I have a final question. As, a, as you were talking about the dramatic underperformance of value over the last decade and specifically over the last three years, it occurred to me that maybe now is a good time to lean into value. What would be your advice to investors thinking about doing so? And specifically, would allocating more money to DFA be a good way to do that? You know, Damien, <laughs> that was always of... a good time to give money to dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so let, me, let me give you a kind of a flip answer and maybe a bit more uh, in-depth answer. When you look at valuation spreads, so if you look at price to earnings, price to sales, price to growth ratios, of growth companies versus value companies, it's historically wide, right? So those spreads are very, very, very big. And does that give you a lot of information about expected value premiums? It's quite noisy. But if you thought that growth companies were growth 10 years ago, on every metric, they're really, really growth today. And the valuation metrics for value companies are kind of the same as they were 10 years ago. Uh, so in that sense, I always believe value always has a higher expected return than growth in the way that we do it. Uh, but now the expected returns may be higher, but I'm not going to go out on a limb for that. The, the evidence supporting that is very noisy and it's, uh, it's, it's not, not uh, definitive. Um, but in terms of uh, you know, investing with Dimensional, I always think it's a good time. I'm biased. I work for Dimensional. Uh, but I think that we bring a lot of things to, to the investors that we work with around transparency, around innovation, around being real experts in how to interact with capital markets. Because there's a lot of ways that the capital markets will give you less than your fair share of the returns for the risk that you've borne. And we focus exclusively on how do we get the fair share of the returns that the capital markets are willing to give for the risks that investors are willing to bear. And that's what we dedicate our time to. And I think that, you know, uh, the history demonstrates whether it's trading costs or whether it's how we elect on corporate actions or it's what we do in stewardship, any of those things. I think that we're uh, stand up there second to none uh, on all of those things that we can control. Gerard, you've been very generous with your time. We, we appreciate you sharing your, your perspectives and your insights. Um, and, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Damien. Thanks for all the questions. Thanks for the discussion. Uh, had a lot of fun. So uh, hopefully it was useful for your audience. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Master Speaker Series podcast produced by Evoke Advisors. You may email us with questions or recommended guest speakers at info at evokeadvisors.com. Please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. 
Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities, trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Thank you.